Amen. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to start reading in verse 1 here in just a couple of minutes. Friends, God designed us to thrive in Christ-like service to each other. This is where we are now inside of the study of Thrive, this environment to, um, uh, to assess and encourage and resource discipleship. We're talking about what it means to be a living hope to the rest of the world around us. So today we're going to talk about service. And we were actually created to thrive in Christ-like service to each other. That concept for you and me, that it is Christ-like service, is absolutely critical. Because when it comes to this kind of behavior, our activities in serving one another, there are a lot of ways that this faith skill of serve or of service can go wrong. We can actually do it selfishly. We can do it in anxiety. We can do it for our own reasons. We can actually develop unhealthy habits if we don't do this in a Christ-like manner. But there are ways, it turns out, and we're going to find this in Scripture, I think, in just beautiful fashions. There are ways to serve one another that can be a genuine gift, both to those who receive our service and those who give of themselves. There is very real theological and relational in Christ-like power in this kind of service to one another. And as with so much else that we have dealt with inside of this series, our primary example is Jesus Christ, who He is, what He has done for us, what God's plan has done for us because of Jesus Christ, how He has served us, people who need a Savior but lack the moral power to actually accomplish any of that on our own. Scripture says it in some really beautiful fashions. God saw our need and God met our need. God saw that no one else was able to meet the needs that He saw within us, so He Himself reached down and took care of that for us. So inside of the the context of Thrive, we're going to describe the faith skill of serve or of service like this. Recognizing and meeting needs with the gentleness and the compassion of Christ. Recognizing and then meeting needs with the gentleness and with the compassion of Christ. So to serve as Christ followers, we need to learn how to see people the way that Christ sees them. So this isn't service out of self-promotion. This isn't service out of, um, you, you know, Uh, gathering up positive things that we have done, putting gold stars on the wall for ourselves. This is not service out of people-pleasing or out of anxiety, but this is service that is propelled by Christ-like generosity and compassion. And we learn what that means and what that looks like by learning about the life of Jesus Christ, how He saw and how He met our needs. So we need to learn how to see others around us through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Then we learn how to meet these needs in ways that keep with the compassion and the wisdom of Jesus Christ. We're going to find out that our service can be intensely practical, actually meeting the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ and the rest of our neighbors. But then also we see in the grand picture that God gives us exactly what we need in Jesus. So we see what this looks like by watching Jesus Christ. The disciplines that we're going to use to make sense 
of service are awareness and action. So awareness. Are our eyes and hearts open? Are we actually open and ready to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ in ways that make sense? Are we aware of how those around us need to be served? So how aware are we? And then we take action. So we see and we recognize, we become aware, and then we do. We, we take action in the right kinds of ways. Do we know how we are suited to serve one another, to be available, to be present with each other, to, to meet the needs of each other as is right and appropriate? As I was working through uh, this faith skill this week, um, a, a passage of Scripture that kind of surprised me just a little bit rose to the surface, and the more I read it, the more I liked it, the more I wanted to spend some time talking about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is this passage of Scripture. Now, one of the surprising things about the epistles in the New Testament are the connections that exist between them. These letters, most of them are written by Paul, but not all of them. Some by John, by Peter, by Jude, by James, and others. So they're written by different people, and they're written in different cities, and they're written in different contexts, and they're written in different parts of the world. But there are these surprising connections between these epistles. It's Paul and his team, and it also turns out that it's the needs of the churches from place to place to place. So the more you read the epistles together, the more you read about Paul talking about the same individuals who move from place to place, or Paul actually speaking of the needs that other churches have to this church over here and talking about how these folks over here gave and met those kinds of needs. And this is that kind of passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So as Paul and his team go from city to city, they not only learn of needs, but they bring those needs then to other churches. Paul will sometimes encourage a church to give to meet other churches in need. And sometimes he's going to thank a church for everything that they have done for him, for his team, and for other Christians. The service that the church gives, as Paul talks about it, as we watch his life and the life of his team, the service that they give is everything from hospitality. Paul and his team leaders, team leaders would actually live inside of those homes. The churches would meet in homes. It's hospitality. It's financial gifts that they give to other churches in need. It's work. Paul will work as a tent maker in a couple of places. So he settles in and he, is, he finds work and he has a place to do work because of the hospitality and the service of the rest of the church around him. In this passage of Scripture, Paul's going to tell the Corinthians about how other churches have given abundantly, but more than that, how they have given out of their joy. Now, this is something cool about how Paul relates to the Corinthian church. He wants them to turn around and to serve their brothers and sisters in Christ. So, he does that by telling them that other churches that are far poorer than they are that those other churches just gave so much, and they met so many needs, and they gave, out of, they gave out of joy, and they gave out of generosity. The big deal, however, in the sight of this passage of Scripture is that our expression of service is God's expression of service to others. So let's begin to make sense of this. Let's start reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. 
We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy in their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. In this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to the will of God to us, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus, one of Paul's team members who is with him from church to church. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so should he complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, I love that you excel in my love for you. That's a great thought. See that you excel in this act of grace also. We want you to know, brothers, how the churches in Macedonia have given abundantly and, generos- and, and, and generously and full of joy. So he wants them to know how the church is just north of them. And geographically, that's how this works. Corinth, sort of near the bottom of the Greek peninsula, the region to the north of them, and it includes churches like Philippi, one of those letters in the New Testament, are the churches in Macedonia. And Paul says, those churches to the north of you have overflowed in abundance in service to the other churches. Now, there's a term that Paul uses here when he talks about their service to each other. Paul calls what God is doing among the churches in their giving and in their service, he calls it grace. That's how he starts this thought. We want you to know how God's grace has caused all of this to happen. And he tells the Corinthians, you all excel in so many things. I want you to excel in this grace as well. This thought holds this passage together. It's the thought that weaves all of this together. So as we think about what we just read, and we think about the importance of Christ-like service to each other, here are some of the things, some of the themes that have come out of those first seven verses to help us make sense of this. The first is this. When we serve each other, it is the gift of God at work among His people. When we serve each other, it is actually the gift of God. And it's the gift of God at work amongst everybody else, both the giver and the receiver. Now, when those Macedonian churches gave, the needs of other churches were actually physically, tangibly met. Most likely what Paul has done is that he has been taking up offering for the church that is left in Jerusalem. Early on in the life of the church, in the book of Acts, persecution falls upon the church and the church scatters, but there are leaders and there are others who remain in the city of Jerusalem and they suffer significant persecution, which probably means that they've had a lot of the basics of life taken from them or they're short on the basics in life. So these are our brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem who are struggling. So when Paul goes all the way to Greece and Macedonia, he takes up an offering so that we meet the physical needs of those in Jerusalem. So people's actual needs are met in this service and in this generosity. 
But the emphasis in the passage that we read here was not just we met their physical need. The emphasis in this passage is on the giver and on the grace of God at work through all of it. Those that Paul talks about in Macedonia, he said, they themselves are suffering severe affliction. And even out of their extreme poverty, he says, they give in abundance and they give with joy. They don't give because we expected them to. They gave so much more than that. And he says, now I want all of you to follow that because it's not just that we're meeting needs, that happens. It's actually the work of God among us. The grace of God is at work. So when we serve each other, the gift of God is at work among His people. And then I love this thought. Service to others is a matter of our heart. It's not a matter of our abundance. This happens so often. It happens with matters of of giving in the church or serving one another, and it happens at major stages inside of our lives. As soon as I have enough money to cover this, then I'm going to do that. It's it's a a standard way in which we think, and just even just life itself. But it happens even when it comes to our service. When I have enough time, when I have enough space, when I have enough margin, when I've taken care of this and that, when I have made sure that my bank account is at a certain point, then I'm going to start to give. Paul says, but that's not what they did. It wasn't a matter of the size of their bank account, and then they just gave everything extra that they had. They gave an abundance out of their affliction and out of their poverty. So it's a matter of what's going on here inside of our hearts and minds and lives. They overflowed in generosity and gave even beyond their means. There's a wonderful story in the Gospels of this very thing. How God sees our giving. And it's this incredible moment where Jesus is in the temple grounds with His disciples. And there's a lot of movement, and there's a lot of noise, and there's a lot of hustle and bustle. And all of these people are coming through this particular part of the temple, and they're bringing their offering into the temple. And history tells us that those who were wealthy and had a lot and had a lot of status inside of the community, they would sometimes come with their offering, and they would come with um, some of uh, their servants around them actually blowing horns and playing instruments saying, here I am, I've come to give a lot of money to the temple treasury. And they would slowly pour these metal coins into these great big brass drums. And so it would be all this noise and all of this pomp and all of this circumstance. And while Jesus and his disciples are sitting there watching all of this happen, this widow walks in and she has one penny or two pennies. This is all she has. And she gives, and this is what happens. Mark chapter 12, verse 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live 
on. Part of what's so powerful about the image of this moment to me is this. Nobody else in the temple treasury heard those two coins drop into the coffer but Jesus. Everyone else heard everything else that was being put in. Jesus heard those two small things fall in. He said, that's more. Because she's giving everything that she has. They gave out of their, they gave what was extra, what was left over. This is how she gave. It's what Paul talks about here in our passage of Scripture. And so then in a stunning turn, it's not just that they gave like this out of their affliction and out of their poverty. They were actually asking Paul and the rest of his team members, they were asking how they could give because they wanted to give of their own accord. This phrasing is astonishing, and every pastor wants to hear this. They were begging us, how can I help? What can I give? What can I do? Who needs what I have to give? They were begging us earnestly for the favor in taking part of the relief of the saints. They gave, Paul says, a couple of times in this passage in different ways, they gave of their own accord. They wanted to know. They wanted to become aware of the needs that the rest of the church had. Who needs this? How can I give? This is what I have. Is this of any use to anybody else? And Paul and his team is able to meet those needs because of the service of those who are in Macedonia. And so this rises to the surface as we're reading about this and about the giving and the money and the the needs that were there. What Paul wants to talk about is this. Service to others is the ministry of God. It's the ministry of God. So that passage again, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That word relief is, is really powerful in the New Testament. That same Greek word is translated more often than not in the rest of the New Testament as ministry. So when you read about the kind of ministry that Paul and the apostles do, the kind of ministry that the Holy Spirit does amongst His children, it's this same concept. They wanted to know how they could minister to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And then Paul says this, and they gave themselves first to the Lord. Notice that. It wasn't just that they gave themselves first to the saints in Jerusalem or to me and to everybody else, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. Our service is first of all service to God and what He wants to do in all of our lives. So guys, listen to this. This kind of giving, this kind of service, this kind of act of being a living hope to the world around us is first and foremost a profound theological reality. It's just a financial reality, not just a service reality, but a theological reality. It is the means by which the grace of God will be at work inside of their lives. Again, both those who receive and those who give. We oftentimes want to know 
how we can change the world. What does the church need to do to change these great big issues? What can I do to change some of these great big systemic problems and injustices that we see inside of the world? We think often in those great big terms of how does the world need to change and what can we do to affect these great big sweeping changes? Now, sometimes the world changes. It's usually for the worst. Just prepare yourselves for that. Sometimes the world does actually change, but the vast majority of the time, individuals serve other individuals who are in need. And when we do that in the name of Jesus Christ, the ministry of God is at work. It happens like those two small copper coins falling into an offering box that nobody else hears, but it turns out that Christ is aware, and Christ is working. And Christ is there. Some of you might actually be the kind of person who wants to change the world or may actually change the world, but you can certainly be someone who serves the needs of others and shows them Jesus Christ. Another intensely practical moment in which this happened in the life of the church that combines the practicality of meeting the physical needs of a growing church with the work of the Holy Spirit amongst His saints happens in Acts chapter 6. And let's read Acts chapter 6, the first three verses of this short chapter in the book of Acts. Now in these days, so this is very early on in the life of the church, but now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists or the Greek converts arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, the meeting of needs. And the twelve, the twelve disciples, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, now get this, the act of serving tables and making sure widows are taken care of. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you those who have great bureaucratic abilities and a little extra time on their hands. It's not what the text says. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So get this. As the church grew, so did the needs of its members. And they discover where the cracks are, where people are kind of falling through the cracks in the system. So they decide the work of distributing food and taking care of the needs of widows needs to go to some of the most mature, spirit-filled leaders among them. There is no small service inside of the church. What God called the apostles to do was preach the word, and they would end up spreading themselves geographically around the then-known world doing exactly that. But this service needed to happen, and it wasn't a throwaway service. It required people who had good reputations. They were full of integrity, and they were full of the Spirit of God, and they were full of wisdom. That's who we need serving the needs of other people. What's the consequence of the church serving like this? of people like this serving the practical needs of one another. Well, when the service of these widows were taken care of, the end of Acts chapter 6 just tells us, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a lot of priests came to the faith. This is what the end of that says. So we restructure this and we find out how to serve one another, and the church just keeps growing and growing 
and growing. Service to others is the ministry of God among us. The power of this two-step process is actually really hard to understate. Becoming aware of and then acting on it as the people of God. Doing this as Christ would do it in the gentleness and the compassion of Jesus Christ. Physical needs are met. We fulfill part of what it means for us to grow spiritually. And God can be powerfully at work. And on top of that, as Paul is going to go on to say, we make much of Jesus Christ. So in verses 8 and 9 in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul has just told the Corinthians, I want you to excel in this same grace. In verses 8 and 9, he puts it like this. I say this not as a command. So he wants this to come from them voluntarily, generously, joy, joyfully. Not just because Paul said so. <laughs> I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. It's the combination of all of this that makes this possible. This act of service is people who belong to Jesus Christ. They give out of joy and they give generously. Their service is ministry to the entire body of Christ. It fulfills God's will among them. God wants us to give. God wants needs to be met. They serve from their own desire to do so. This is the work of the Holy Spirit inside of the church. and They don't do it just because they were commanded to. For you know, he says, now remember this word that holds this whole passage together. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know the grace that though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes so that we might become rich in Jesus Christ. It turns out that what Jesus did for us is also this act of grace, this act of service. He gave from His abundance so that we might be made rich in the life of God. This powerful passage when Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 2, he said that though he was the same as, equal with God. He did not consider that, but instead of that, he emptied himself and became like us, and he took on the form of a servant and became obedient to the will of the Father, even to the point of death. So that, the story goes on, when Christ is resurrected and ascended in our soon and coming King, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see this powerful act of service. He gave up what he had in his richness and he became poor so that we might become rich. He died and rose again that we might be saved. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. This is kind of how I want to finish this thought 
as we look at Christ, as we learn what it means to become aware of and to meet the needs of others and the gentleness and the compassion of Christ, to, to make sure that Christ is our Christ is our guide. Christ is our power. Christ is our wisdom for this. So the awareness of others' needs is critical, obviously, but that's not the end of the story. Action needs to be taken. The right action to solve the right kinds of problems. So Paul said that Jesus became poor so that we might be made rich. Jesus came to us in the form of a human infant born to the Virgin Mary in a stable. The entire divine plan of reclamation, of putting all of this back together again, is wrapped up in the birth of Jesus Christ as He comes into this world. His life, death, resurrection, ascension, and the promise of Him as our soon incoming King. This Jesus who, as we read during worship this morning, was born to save his people from their sins. And Isaiah chapter 9 is this incredible glimpse into what God's act of serving our need looks like. Now, in the book of Isaiah, in this little section here, chapters 7, 8, and 9 form this important train of thought. As you go back to Isaiah chapter 7 and you read the beginning of the chapter there, Israel's enemies are all around them. All of these foreign nations and this growing empire, the Assyrians, they are even in league with some of the other tribes of Israel. And so the king of Judah is rightfully worried and afraid, but God then comes to him. I, I, God sends Isaiah to the king and he says, don't worry, salvation is on its way. And to seal the promise of that salvation, God ends up giving the king a sign, and that sign is that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, because he will be God with us. Then in chapter 8, God warns his people to be patient and to be faithful. Salvation is coming, the Messiah is coming, Emmanuel is coming, but until that moment, I need you to be faithful, and I need you to endure, and I need you to be patient. But as it turns out, there are going to be plenty of people amongst God's children who aren't patient, who don't endure, and who end up looking to other gods as their saviors. They end up looking to other things to save them instead of the God that they serve, the one true God. And so at the end of Isaiah chapter 8, at the end of verse 21 and moving then into verse 22, listen to this language of those who rebel against God instead of enduring and being patient in faithfulness. The text says this right at the end of Isaiah 8, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged. In other, ter in other words, they will be enraged at God. And they will speak contemptuously against their king and against their God and turn their faces upward. That's not in worship, but that's in contempt. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is the consequence of sin. This is the consequence of looking to other ideologies and other gods to save us instead of the one true God. 
But there's, just, there's this really cool thing that God does. The stunning thing that God does. He sees the needs of His people. Even the needs that are caused by our own sin. Their own sin thrusts them into deep pitch black darkness. God sees the needs of His people caused by their own sin. God sees that there is no person who has the power to fix this problem. So God, in His boundless love and power, reaches down, serves His people, and meets their needs. That's the story of Isaiah chapter 9. So let's begin reading in chapter 9. And in verse 1, the text goes like this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time... He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. God is at work doing all of this. The people who we just read about, who walked in darkness, have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. There is so much they just keep giving to others. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment that was rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire because the light has come. We created darkness. We created our own need. We are incapable of taking care of it. So God sends His light. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. There was a time, the text says, this is the point of the anticipation, uh, the hopefulness of this prophecy. There was a time when people walked inside of their own darkness, living in the consequence of their own sin. It is part of the judgment of God because of what we do. But from this very area, God says in Isaiah 9, God will make that same area that was in darkness glorious. That is where the light will come from. In a cool move in the, in the life of Jesus Christ, right at the very beginning of His ministry, Jesus goes to Galilee, and in fact, my, uh, my text actually says this is the beginning. The, the section heading says this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus goes to Galilee to the very region that is mentioned here. And Matthew says Jesus went there in order to fulfill this prophecy of Isaiah. In the very first message, this first sermon that Jesus speaks in this land that was in darkness, it's very simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. Repent. Turn away from that darkness. There is a better way to live than the darkness you're walking in now because the kingdom of heaven is here now, because Jesus has come. 
The darkness of the kingdom of their world sees the light of the kingdom of heaven and the coming of Jesus Christ. So the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The vocabulary of these verses that we read, it's overwhelming. It's, it's beautiful. There isn't just light. There is great light. A land that was in deep, pitch-black darkness now sees the light of the promise of God. There is now great joy. The yoke and the staff of the oppressor is gone. The conflict and the strife, the shed blood that is created on small scales and international stunning scales that is all created by our own brokenness and sin is burned in the fire and gone. Isn't that beautiful? It's just done because the light has come. All of this vocabulary and the work of God serving His people, even in their own sin, reminded me of another Old Testament prophet, the prophet Ezekiel. Now, I know all of you have been reading Ezekiel in your own private devotionals at night, so this is probably going to be redundant for many of you. But deep in this magnificent book, Ezekiel 34, verses 11 and 14, now listen again to the vocabulary. This is the same God speaking to His people through His prophet. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search from my sheep, and will seek them out. Does it sound like Jesus in the Gospels, the good shepherd? As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, that they have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness." And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by ravines and in the inhabited places of this country. I, I myself will seek my people. They've been in darkness, but like a good shepherd, I'm going to rescue every one of my sheep out of every ravine that they have fallen into from every broken bone and every disease, and I will feed them. This is the God who seeks out. This is the God who of all things serves His broken people. This is the God who saves His people. The darkness has turned into lights, and the harvest has come, He says. The rule of the oppressor in sin is broken. The battle created by our sin and rebellion is gone. This is the work of the coming of Emmanuel. So some of those verses may be familiar, but the next two verses are very familiar. How does all of this happen? In Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, 
there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I myself will seek out my sheep and I will take care of them. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Paul said that Jesus became poor so that we might become rich. This child comes as God in flesh. Friends, God serves us by becoming everything we need. And His name shall be called. And then we meet all these beautiful, astounding things that describe who this child is. He serves you and me by becoming everything we need. Jesus did not come as a celebrity, as a scientist, as a military general, a politician, a professor, a guru, a community organizer, or a public health official. None of these roles solves what we really need. What we really need is a Savior. What we really need is this child and everything that He is for us. Think about it for a second. A child is born with everything that comes with every normal physical birth this child enters this world. We need God to come alongside us to live this life and to live it perfectly as the perfect human being, to die His death upon the cross in my stead, to restore actual flesh and blood human beings to God. This is no transcendent divine idea who comes among us as a translucent ghost, floats just above the floor, and gives us a lot of bright ideas. That's not how God came. He came as a child to live among us, to die, to rise again, and to come back. A child is born. The text says the government will be His. I'm so thankful for that. The government, rule over all, will belong to this child, Jesus Christ. You see, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is now here. It comes with Jesus Christ. It is among us now in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of heaven is trying to make its way inside of our lives, transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. And He is coming again in His full and complete and absolute power as King of kings and as Lord of lords in the increase. Get that, friends. That phrase is incredible. The increase of His government and of His peace. You'd think there'd be an end point to peace, to shalom, but there's not. And of the increase of the goodness of God, there just won't be an end to it. He is our wonderful counselor. The needs of sinful people are met in our comforter, are met in our counselor, 
Jesus Christ. He is our mighty God, it says. He is perfect in all He is and in all He does. This God of eternal perfection and holiness serves us so that we might become His children. He becomes poor so that we might become rich. He is the everlasting Father. He is our authority. He is our guide. He is our provider. He is the one who loves us with sacrificial love. He is the Father who will never leave us and who will never forsake us. And He is our Prince of Peace. Friends, human schemes that promise perfection and large-scale solutions to all of our problems don't ever produce the peace we need. In fact, what they do is they create strife, anger, envy, and bloodshed. That's what they do. Jesus comes as our peace. He is our Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to His reign or end to the increase of His peace. Every deep and universal longing of the human heart is met and satisfied in the absolute divine abundance of Jesus Christ. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, the God of all power in the universe, His zeal for you will do this. His desire to meet your need will accomplish this. So Jesus sees and He meets our need. And we are given life. We are given even the option of abundant life in Jesus Christ. And we are saved because of His service to us. And we are given eternity because of it. God designed us to thrive in Christ-like service to each other. And we look to Jesus Christ as the one who shows us the way in this, to have the perspective, the eyesight of God toward those around us and to serve them in the Christ-like compassion that we have received, that now we are called to give so that the will and ministry of God can be at work among all of us. Let's pray.